Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey um, into kind of uh, the history of Islam? And, um, you know, I I love the intersection of all the different spheres you bring into play with uh, today's book, um, which is politics, law and community and Islamic thought. uh, And I I apologize in advance. I'm going to brutalize all these (laughs) all these pronunciations. But the, the the Tamiyan moment. Is that yeah, you got it? Okay. Oh, and um, can you tell us about your journey? Uh, you know, both kind of in uh, into this area, and then particularly for this book, what led you to write this book? Okay, great. So I was born in Pakistan and grew up partly in Saudi Arabia and partly in the United States. Uh, my first love was um, physics. I wanted to do modern physics. That's what um, that's what I went. To to uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison for, um, it was a top nuclear engineering and physics program. Um, And midway through the program, I found myself gravitating toward more soft sciences. Um, I had a fairly good background in Islamic studies and history, but I never thought of it as something I'll do for a living or, or, or philosophy. I remember, in fact, there was a very interesting moment when I'm in a electrical circuits class in, in a physics class, and there is this uh, really sweet Mexican girl who is very smart, but physics is not her thing, so I'm helping her and in a lab. And she's, you know, you know, just, I'm not very good at making small talk, so the only thing I can talk to her about as I'm helping her is what courses she's taken. So she tells me psychology. And I'm like, why would you take psychology? There's like no physics, there's no science. And, and then, you know, she tells me, no, it's actually very interesting. You should try it. And um, I know you had to take some, like some of this stuff, but I think it was at that moment of like, you know, I need to take maybe a little more of that. Um, and then my own reading interests expanded. I became very interested in political science, political philosophy, sociology, political sociology, as I took all of these courses. So, yeah, it was something like that. Like, you know, there are small encounters like this. Um, then I, so this is, I, I don't, I don't want to date myself here, but, uh, mid-90s, right? Um, and I finish my undergraduate in 1997, 1998. And then I go to do a master's in social sciences at the University of Chicago. Um, and that is where I discover that this is great. This is what I want to be doing, but not quite in, in that way and not quite the right field. Um, I wanted, I figured 
um, that I'm much more interested in thinking more um, broadly than social scientific discipline allows you. Um, and so I moved from social sciences to history and philosophy in my PhD. Along the way, I got married and also got a, another degree in computer science, um, a master's to make ends meet un, until I had time and luxury to go back and, and finish my, my PhD. Um, so that's my academic journey now. Why the topic? The topic is really, so what, what my book is about is um, intellectual history and philosophy of Islamic politics of the first seven centuries of Islam. Um, the simplest way to explain that would be uh, there is a question uh, that often, you know, the West versus the rest question that's often asked. Islam is often uh, contrasted to the West and um, also, Islam is very much constituted part of the modern West in the sense that the modern West sort of uh, grew up thinking, being afraid of Islam as a competitor, as a dominant civilization that the Western, Western Europe saw itself as, you know, on the, under the shadow of the Ottoman Empire. So Islam is all over the place when you look at um, European Western history. Yet at the same time, it's usually not mentioned by name um, because of all the politics. So the question uh, in recent years has been, what went wrong? And this is a popular book that was authored by Bernard Lewis, who is a uh, well-known Orientalist uh, and Middle East uh, historian. What went wrong, especially after 9-11-2001, people are asking this question, what happened to Islam? And the problem that I had as I'm studying this question is that all the questions that are being asked are very uh, prejudicial. And they're being asked from a particular moment in history if you change that moment in history, go back and what was being asked, say, 50 years earlier, questions were different. And then you go back 50 years earlier than that, the questions were different. If you were, you know, so you would be asking in the 17th or 18th century, the, the, the menace of Islam, like what makes these people so powerful and perhaps so impenetrable? Um, in the early 20th century, when um, Europe is discovering nation state, democracy, constitutionalism, the question is, well, where is constitutionalism and Islam? These are all despotic rulers. In the late 20th century, early 21st century, the question is, why are Muslim terroristic or why are they inclined toward terrorism? All of these questions, you know, not that they are not legitimate, they are simply coming from there are more questions for Western scholars to understand themselves than really something about Islam. Um, we often give people this, you know, this tidbit that, look, you know, 
Today, the, the world in which we live, Buddhism is considered synonymous with peace and Islam with terrorism, but terrorist bombing was invented by Buddhist activists. Uh, and today, for example, if you look at Myanmar, uh, there is a nationalist government that uh, uh, fascist almost government in place, um, which is not to say that nobody would say because of that, that, you know, Buddhism is, is terroristic religion. But for Islam, that has become the case for a number of reasons. My interest was not so much to respond to any of this, because I just don't think the questions are interesting enough to respond to. Um, but rather, what the right questions must be. Um, and so I went to early Islam to look at how have Muslim scholars, some of the you know, great philosophers, theologians, jurists, um, who, and this all goes without saying, at least in my field, that predated many of the European Enlightenment and Renaissance and whatnot by centuries, um, and some of the ideas of both Renaissance and, and Enlightenment come from directly from uh, the questions that Muslims have been asking. And uh, so for me, all of these are background questions, not really what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was ask, how can Muslims understand um, Muslim tradition? How can Muslim philosophers, Muslim thinkers, Muslim political theorists understand Islamic tradition and do so critically. In other words, what should be the right kind of critiques? If these are misplaced critiques, what are the right critiques? And why should there be any critique? Right? So that's, that's obviously an interesting question. And to me, um, that's a very natural part of thinking. It's, in other words, you don't criticize something because you think it has failed. You criticize something because, um, well, if it's a human project, uh, you can always ask two questions about any great, uh, whether it's democracy or great history, great tradition, great philosophy. One, what works? And two, what are the cracks and tensions? And often what will happen is that if, if a great empire Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire fails, or a great democratic experiment or whatever fails, you historians will look at uh, some of the tensions and say, well, that's why it failed. But if it didn't fail, then the same tensions might be seen as part of the strength. Uh, so the question of failure and decline, again, are not interesting. It is rather simply a way of thinking about the world. You can always ask, by the United States, what works? What is great about the United States? And you will say, well, there is democracy, there is constitution, there is um, great plurality, there is our ability to talk about America critically, and so on and so forth. All of those things that would be correct. There are some of the best universities in the world, and um, the biggest military industrial complex, which is great for some people, and others might look at that as as as, as, as the greatest failure or and, and, and then you could also look at, well, there is genocide of Native Americans, there is slavery, there is imperialism, there is constant warfare, uh, and there is internal inequality that is increasing and getting out of hand. Now, both of those stories about the United States would be um, valid way of thinking and, and talking about the United States. 
and perhaps the story wouldn't be complete if you didn't do both. Um, so similarly, my question was about an Islamic tradition. What were the ways in which Muslims um, and Islamic tradition has been asking itself these questions, uh, and particularly the questions of critique? How has it been criticizing itself? Uh, not that it wasn't full of praise and self-confidence. It was perhaps one of the most self-confident uh, traditions. But at the same time, there is also always deep critique. Um, and so that perhaps goes to explain the title, uh, the second part of the title, the Taimian moment. Um, the word Taimias, in fact, is from the name of a particular firebrand jurist uh, in 14th century Damascus, Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, who died in the year 1328. And um, to me, he was attractive for a number of reasons. He's one of the most original thinkers of, of that period, uh, but also he comes at a, at a crucial moment in Islamic history, right after the Mongols have destroyed uh, more than half of the Islamic world. And it's for the first time this is seventh century, seventh century for, for Muslims, um, based on Hijra calendar. In those seven centuries of Islam, between seventh and fourteenth centuries of Common Era, uh, Muslims have felt confident that God is on their side and that what they have done on the whole, despite many errors and missteps, on the whole, they are the favored people, that they have been they are the dominant civilization in the world. And they remain dominant even after this uh, great disaster. But the disaster was of epic proportions, the kind that uh, entire millions and millions of people were killed uh, by the Mongols. Cities, the great cities of Persia, of Central Asia, and parts of Iraq uh, were destroyed, and some of them have never recovered. Baghdad, for example, was a center of the world, intellectual center, financial center, uh, never fully recovered. After that, uh, and this happened in the year 1258. So this happened about uh, nearly uh, less than a century before Ibn Taymiyyah died. So Ibn Taymiyyah lives in the shadow of the Mongol onslaught, trying to explain. Um, but also as a result of this, really taking a, an exceptionally and deeply critical look at the formation of Islamic tradition. So to me, that forms a really interesting vantage point, uh, that now instead of listening to Western colonizers, a European uh, uh, who could, whose critiques could be dismissed as well, it's just uh, colonizers dividing and ruling and whatnot, now we can hear Muslims talk to each other, uh, talk to themselves about what went wrong and how to fix it. Um, and the area that I'm interested in is formally, as I said, politics. But the way I understand politics is not how we, in a much more limited sense, understand politics as, you know, a public aspect of one's life in which people, groups, communities compete for their interests. But rather, I understand politics in a way that 
uh, Aristotle and Plato would have understood, meaning uh, politics is the highest philosophy, highest science, highest kind of knowledge. The knowledge of how the whole group, whatever the group is, but however the whole group, the city or the nation or the people, how does that group flourish, right? And so political knowledge uh, is the greatest kind of knowledge. And in fact, ethics is a branch of politics for, for our Greek uh, masters. In, in, in many ways, um, this was the, uh, this is my approach to politics, but this is also how uh, Muslims would have understood uh, this uh, politics, this idea of uh, thinking about the entire Muslim community and then through the, of the world, through this Muslim community, uh, this global Muslim community now. And so... Is that, sure. if, forgive me for interrupting, would, would that, because uh, I remember you talking about it's the polis versus the right, umma, right. if I'm saying that right. right. And and so, uh, and it's something I didn't uh, pick up on, but it makes sense, is that uh, you talked about the polis is territorial, right? The Greek conce uh, concept of politics is territorial, but the umma is uh, a community surrendered around an ideal and only incidentally territorial. And that actually, the, the missing piece that you just added there is that it's global, right? That you, they see themselves as uh, Islam as a whole. Uh, so that's, and that obviously when you, even, you know, in the West, we talk about Western culture, but it's still like, that's not politics. That's like shared history, right? Like when you talk about politics, you're talking about the United States, Canada, Mexico, you're talking about distinct regions. So, um, and just uh, uh, for our listeners' sake, I did want to go back. When you talk about that direct connection between Greek uh, to Europe and uh, from Islam to Enlightenment, you're, are you talking about Maimonides, if I'm saying right, his name right. correctly? Right, so Maimonides, uh, uh, who in Arabic, he would have called himself Musa ibn Maimun, because he spoke Arabic, a uh, great Jewish theologian, one of the greatest, right? Uh, it's famously said about him between Moses and Moses, there was none like Moses, uh, meaning that, you know, he really has this, uh, uh, this great prestige. Uh, he flourished. I didn't. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I wasn't uh, trying to distract from your main point because I think it's really like, right. I want to hear that. I just wanted to make sure, like, if people heard that and that was their first time hearing that, they would understand, like, this is somewhere you can go further with that, if that makes sense. If right. you want to talk so more reason, about that, that's I think fine. You're, but. you're right. It, it is a piece that I wanted to talk about because the word, you know, when you said Greek in Europe, like when you think of from, from Greece to Europe, you would normally think like, hey, that seems like, okay, Greece is in Europe and therefore there is this continuous history. There isn't. There isn't. What Greece no. is, if you think about the, Greece, it, it's really one side of the lake that's Mediterranean Sea and on the other side of that lake is Egypt and Syria and, and Iraq um, and, and then and Turkey, what is presently Turkey, Anatolia. And so these cultures are much more deeply integrated than Greece is with England or France or Germany or, or these regions historically. And that's why to mm -hmm. think of Islam, um, this whole idea of West versus the rest, it doesn't quite work 
when you look at it uh, this way, because in, in a sense, Islam is the bridge between the West and the rest, but Islam is also uh, very much a Western tradition uh, in, in the two senses mm. that, uh, you know, if you think about the great sources of Western thought, it's uh, Jerusalem and Athens, those are the two, right, two poles, right. Um, the philosophical tradition and then the prophetic tradition, uh, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, the Bible. And um, Islam is very much a continuation of that. And theologically, Islam begins by affirming that uh, the Abrahamic connection, the Hellenic connection, Athens comes a little bit later. Uh, Islam, that is original sources of Islam, the Quran is not concerned with Hellenic thought, but uh, it becomes a part of Islamic uh culture less than two centuries after the beginning of Islam. Now, the reason I think that it's important to bring in that connection is that uh, after, again, a couple of centuries after the beginning of Islam, Greek thought, uh, Greek-speaking people convert to Islam. Um, the Greek philosophical tradition was being carried out uh, continued in the regions um, that were conquered by and incorporated into Islam. And Islamic attitude toward knowledge and philosophy is very open compared to uh, the uh, Byzantine Christianity at, at the time, who had expelled philosophically inclined Christians uh, as, as deviant sects, Nestorians and Jacobites and others. So these were persecuted sects uh, of Christianity that thrived within Islam. And so Muslims are constantly in, in you know, interaction with them. And so Greek tradition survives in Islam as a civilization and not so much in, in Europe for uh, several centuries. Uh, and that's why when Muslims talk about Aristotle and Plato, they aren't talking about European Aristotle and Plato. They're talking about very much a, uh, a tradition in, uh, that in which Islam came and in, in which Islam interacted. Um, and um, in, so in both senses, right, Islam has both that piece of Athens and Jerusalem through slightly different genealogies. Uh, Jerusalem and Mecca are effectively sites of divine revelation. And, and so the Quran sees itself as, in a way, continuation of Jerusalem, uh, as a continuation of the biblical tradition, as a God-sent reformation to Judaism and Christianity. Um, so now... This is also interesting politically because um, Islam begins as a political success in contrast to Christianity, right? Which becomes, you could say, politically triumphant in fourth century, right, of its existence, and is persecuted for uh, uh, for for a couple of centuries at first. In Islam, that is not the case. Um, Islam begins, 
there is persecution in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, who preaches for 23 years, first 13 years, he's persecuted in Mecca and then goes to Medina, becomes uh, a leader in Medina, and then ultimately is able to um, defeat his uh, enemies in, in Arabia. And, and by the time he dies, Arabia has submitted to him. And by the time his lieutenants, the four caliphs, uh, die uh, 30 years later, the two great empires, Persia and two-thirds of the Roman Empire, have submitted to Islam. Uh, they have not converted to Islam, by the way. but So the majority are still non-Muslims, but they have politically submitted to Islam. And conversions are slow and take a long time, nearly three centuries. So that's the story of Islam. But Islam is politically successful. And that's my first main point in the book, uh, which is that the contrast between, I guess, let me actually uh, frame this. You could say that my book is really about three main contrasts that are all related. One, Islam's early political vitality, uh, early Islam's political vitality, I should say, and classical Islam's legalism and political desiccation, political um, enervation. Right. So. Which. Yeah, you you reference this with what and I think this will help our our audience envision this. The problem that I if I understand your book correctly, the problem you're trying to fix is what you call the U-shaped right. life. Right. That this idea that like um, classical Islam and the way and the resources, the theological resources that are often used have this very like individual pietistic nuclear right. family morality. And then there's the this almost apocalyptic, and I'm using that in a more technical sense, uh, theological vision and this pure ideal. And then there's a real problem. And this is where your discussion about politics and not using Western categories, but the, the community uh, involvement is left out in the middle. And there's kind of a giving over to just current reality, politi- what I would say, current right, political right, reality. Right. So this is... This is a great point that you that you make about U-shaped curve. First of all, I should give due credit. Um, the idea of U-curve was proposed by uh, Samuel Huntington, who, in his uh, uh, you know, when he's contrasting Western to Islamic civilization, what he's really talking about uh, Western civilization in the heyday of politics and Islamic civilization as he sees it today. Uh, and in the medieval period, which is, he says, look, uh, in the West, people's, people are, you know, there is modern West, there is individualism, and then people's loyalty often belongs to the nation state to which they belong, right? But if you plot um, on the strength of loyalty on the vertical axis, on the horizontal axis, you have scale of association, starting with individual and then family and then larger family and tribe and then region and then the state and then the world, right? If you have that curve for the Western uh, model, there is strong individualism and then state, but community and family are missing. And, and so there is that. Whereas in uh, classical Islam, you have a strongly U-shaped 
life in which you have strong association, not so much, not in the strong individualism, but family. Family and immediate community are important, but then political association with what we would call the nation or state is very weak. And then there is a strong association with the global Muslim community everywhere. And that's that U shape, right? Because you're strong with family and community and strong globally. But when thinking about the state, um, you don't have a very strong. And what this means is that if somebody who lived in Syria, for example, let's say 14th century uh, or, or, or Cairo, they would have strong associations with their community and family, but they wouldn't have a concept of Syria as a state or Egypt as a state. They would be no strong. They would. They won't even have language for that. Apart from this family and community, they would think of themselves as a member of a global Muslim community. And you could have a traveler like Ibn Battuta, the famous, famous 14th century traveler who goes from um, Tanja in Morocco one extreme, like one uh, uh, end of um, the African, North Africa, all the way to India and the borders of China, in fact, to China, and finds everywhere Muslims where he can become a useful member of the community, doesn't need visas, he becomes part of um, the Muslims wherever he goes as a Jurist, he is in fact employed in the court of Delhi in India, uh, uh, where Muslims are ruling. So, and this kind of global, global, right? This is almost a global existence in which the nation state is very weak. And this allows me also to make this point that among the things that were really uh, strong about uh, classical Islam, things that we could look to for for uh, for lessons and inspiration is this kind of very comfortable global society. You see, if somebody who's trained as a lawyer in Canada just crosses over and comes to the United States, they can't really function without learning a new law and a new system. Um, and then, of course, the licenses and a bar and so on. But somebody who speaks Arabic um, uh, in, in Morocco, lives on the, on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, goes to India and is appointed a judge there because it's the same law, same legal tradition, same community, even though the actual political, uh, the kings and sultans who are ruling, they're different, but they're, all, they're unimportant in medieval Islam. It's a community that's far more important. And the law that people live by is a law that crosses borders. It's not a law that is territorial. It's a law that uh, belongs to global community. So that is what um, that U-shaped curve means. It's both, in a sense, a, a, a really, I think, an amazing thing. At the same time, it has certain weaknesses. Um, and my book is really looking at, not that there was nothing good about it, but how could you critique this in a way that's productive? 
Now, yeah. there is a similar concern, not quite the same scale, a similar concern as the world, our own world is becoming globalized, right, in the 90s. Um, there were a number of books that came out in the 90s after the fall of Soviet Union um, and the, increase, the increasing power of globalist uh, institutions, the rise of European Union, for example. Uh, there was a strong concern among uh, political theorists that uh, as the nation state and nationalism are becoming weaker and weaker, uh, the very idea of politics is becoming weaker. Why? Because if, if our lives are determined by global institutions and uh, by global multinational corporations, um, to what extent is democracy going to be meaningful and effective in helping people, in, in, in representing people's interests? And we are seeing that, right? Uh, the great reaction against globalism in our own country over the last decade um, is really a concern that we're losing control. Whether it's good or bad, evil or, or not, the question is nevertheless, it is very much a historically grounded and recognizable concern. And Islamic legal tradition and classical civilization was you could say an extreme version of a very global society in which people had lost hmm. um, politics because there were global institutions and law that, that determined their lives. Um, and there were some many good things that came with that. And there are some weaknesses. And the kind of weakness, one of the uh, manifestations of that weakness was when the Mongols walk, you know, Mongols attacked the Muslim world, they weren't able to defend themselves. Similarly, when the Crusaders came from Latin West, they walked right to the heart of the Muslim world and uh, there was no strong reaction to them because people didn't think of themselves as a corporate entity. Today, the way a state protects its waters jealously, uh, that sense, right, is, was, was absent. And, you know, when I hear discussions yeah. in our media about, well, what does the left want? Immigrants can just walk in and, you know, um, and, 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 and the people on the left really have an imagination, which would be very recognizable to classical Muslims. Yeah, of course, anybody can come. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, so long as they are productive members and they do this and that, it's, uh, but at the same time, what is lost as a result when you don't have this corporate sense as one community, rather you're a global community, um, is as it's famously, I think of Cicero who said, a citizen of the world is a citizen of nowhere. Yeah. I, I, and that really helps to give kind of, I think the shape of the problem. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Tamiya's contribution to that missing section yeah, in the so U. I would say that for Ibn Tamiya, the crucial uh, problem was that Muslims had become um, so divided up in their 
sectarian identities in the way that we today might say, you know, identity politics of today, right? Uh, his worry was that Muslims have become so sectarian uh, because they have turned away from the unifying message of God. And his message or vision was not quite all homogenizing, but rather differentiating between what is central and what isn't. And, and you could disagree about things that aren't central. So, for example, he was strongly in favor of legal pluralism. Communities have their own traditions, live by those. But there are certain key ideas and commitments that you must have. And, and his idea was that that is necessary um, in order to revive what I call a community-centered vision. One of the major transformations that had occurred as a result uh, of the great conquest of early Islam when the Persian and Roman empires, effectively they were conquered by Islam, but they also conquered Islam. Right, because these are great traditions, mm. hundreds of years old, and their institutions come into this young, you know, society. And as rulers are looking for models to govern and to build new society, they adopt those models, or they're influenced by, especially the Persian uh, world. Right. So, in fact. Uh, Muslims were much more interested in Persian social and cultural models. And uh, so when it comes to society and culture and literature, they looked to Persia. When it came to philosophy and science, they looked to Greeks. So there is enormous trans translation and incorporation and very great openness to these societies. And along with that came the great inequality of these imperial societies that uh, in a sense, overwhelmed, shadowed, but didn't quite eliminate the initial egalitarianism of Islam. So that's another contrast that I want to point out, that early Islamic society in Medina is, is, is extremely egalitarian in a merit, meritocratic way. Um, you know, when somebody would come to visit Muhammad, who is a prophet of God, um, they wouldn't even know who he is. He has no crown. He's wearing tattered clothes like the rest of them. Uh, he's a prophet, also a servant of people who sleeps with nothing in his house. You know, he, he lives in a, in a tiny uh, house made of, made of dirt. And everybody uh, was equal. In fact, his uh, companions are called companions because he did not like to think of themselves as higher. So they're not disciples. They're even called his companions and friends. So there is great egalitarianism, which is at the heart of uh, early Islam, both the Quranic message and the, and, the, and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad himself. But then these great societies that Islam conquers and, and, and within 50 years, you have this, you know, a few thousand people ruling over a few million people. And those few million, several million, probably tens of million people in Persia and, and, and um, lands of Roman Empire who have far more developed institutions. And those institutions begin to interact with and in many ways uh, overwhelm some of the cultural social traditions. 
one of the critiques that Ibn Taymiyyah had was to go back to the early vitality, early egalitarianism, an early community-centered vision of Islam, rather than looking at the society as this great hierarchy in which uh, the ruler and the elite, uh, whether they are clerical elite or other elite, are, uh, you know, they are the ones sort of infallible uh, who control uh, the levers of the society. So one of his great contributions was this egalitarianism and community-centered politics. So uh, forgive me for... I, I once I find a mental image that's helping me, I kind of stick to it. <laughs> but so as you're talking here, it almost sounds like uh, what happened was uh, if we keep that U shape in mind, that Persian uh, nation state, those models and institutions uh, were what filled that empty space in the U. And so what Tamiya is uh, arguing against and what he's arguing for is the uh, the return of of Islamic models by going back to the early and trying to fill out what's missing there. Am yeah, I tracking that, with you? That's a, that's a great way to to look at it. That he is not so. We shouldn't think that he is some anti-Persian, right? These were simply not the categories in which uh, Muslims thought, right? So himself, he's a Kurd, not an Arab. And um, some of the greatest scholars he learned from were Persian. So the question is more about um, religious, I, religious orthodoxy and correctness by the standards of revelation. And because that revelation came in a very egalitarian society, it has a very egalitarian flavor, sometimes directly egalitarian commands. Um, and the, the stratification of society that comes as a result as the great empire, empire is built and, and grows old, this great inequalities where everybody has a place and you know, rulers and know how to do politics best, mystics know how to do mysticism best connected to God. Theologians know what God is better than anybody else. Um, he is attacking those ideas in each of those fields. And so it's a sum total of his attacks, which is that, look, you mystics, uh, you are not so much better than an ordinary believer. Oh, you theologians, your image of God in fact, it's just a philosophical construction, but that's not the best representation of revelation, which is much more commonsensical. Uh, you jurists, you know, you have great system of, uh, of, uh, of law that you have constructed, but it needs to be uh, judged by the standards of revelation. And so the result of all of that is each of these greatly stratified systems are collapsed a little bit. And the common person's uh, sense of what is right is empowered as a result. That a common person has... Is this what you call... Go ahead. 
I was going to say, is this what you call practical right, wisdom? Right. So there is um, practical wisdom uh, and common sense. Uh, I use the word common sense. Uh, right. Okay. Because uh, a common person's belief in right and wrong and understanding of God and understanding of politics, each of those has been overshadowed by this growth of greatly complex sciences in a way that we could imagine perhaps today, you know, as the, um, uh, you know, in the academy, for example, you know, if you were to talk to an ordinary person. For Americans, this is a very familiar problem, right? Many Americans, in fact, hate the academy precisely because these are highfalutin ideas and theories that don't seem to make sense. And or in ordinarily, what is the effect of that in my life? How is that helping me, right? Um, and that is, in a sense, there needs to be a balance between the great academic development and common sense. Ibn Taymiyyah's belief, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, is that because, and I just wanna make sure I'm tracking with you, is that because it's very, like if you cut off common sense completely, if you cut out, <coughs> excuse me, practical wisdom completely of the, of the common person, you're cutting off their participation yes. in the community. Yes. Um, now, Ibn Taymiyyah has a very strong theological reason for, reason for supporting common sense, which is that uh, great prophets like Moses and Jesus and Muhammad were not philosophers. And if God revealed his message to them, he didn't reveal right. his message to Aristotle and Plato, but to ordinary people who could talk to the poorest and the simplest uh, of person and say the greatest of truths. Uh, my favorite physicist, uh, Richard Feynman, used to say that if you cannot explain a problem to an undergraduate, you haven't understood it. Um, you could say that is a very Tamian mm. sentiment. That if a common person cannot understand uh, and cannot practice your doctrine, then you don't understand it. Um, or perhaps you're just wrong. Mm. And of course... In a sense, in a sense, yeah, he has, some, he has great nuggets about how uh, excessive intellectualism, in fact, is a kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of like a self-pleasuring, but that leads, doesn't lead to truth. Uh, and he would say, for example, he debates with philosophers and theologians, and he would say, look, sometimes... If you tell them something straight up, they won't believe it because um, they're, you know, the, the skeptical part of their mind is, you know, they value it too much. They think it's, it, and, but, but if you tire them with arguments, at the end of the day, they will accept the same truth, same point. But by that time, they're too tired to ask questions. So they think that is the truth, right? Um, and, or another way to say this, this will be hard to, uh, to, to put in words, but there is a, there is a um, saying in, in Urdu, 
um, that you can hold your ear like this or like this. But if you do it this way, right? If you, if you go around and twist your arm and, 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 and hold it in the other way, it looks just, you know, for, to a philosopher, to an academic, this looks a lot more legitimate than this. And so um, there is some of that, uh, especially on fundamental issues. Uh, if God communicated to the common person, then the common person's understanding must have some fundamental validity. That you don't need the highest uh, philosophical abstraction to understand God. Then, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I want to be uh, aware of your time and uh, respect it. Uh, kind of as we draw to a close here. What is the the way forward? When you got to the end of this, what are some further topics for study? But also, what are some uh, what have you learned through uh, working through this book? What are what are some practical solutions for so, the way forward? This book for me was a way to say that look, uh, Muslim philosophers and Muslim thinkers, uh, first of all need to learn how to critique with with confidence how to understand self critiques of this this uh, absolutely stunning tradition uh that where this dialogue has gone on for centuries about these uh about these issues um and one becomes uh wiser uh, and humbler when one looks at these great um great mm. minds duking it out for centuries. Um, and that modern political problems are different in degree, but not in nature, not in quality, but perhaps just quantity. Um, and, and therefore, we do have great wisdom to learn in the age of nation states, in the age of internet, in the age of, you know, uh, the revolution uh, in, in, in the material revolutions in our lives. But they're not, um, the problems are not fundamentally new. And common sense is still great help. Despite uh, the sophistication mm. of the um, academic knowledge. Uh, we can see how uh, academics, for example, if you look at uh, some of the recent debates um, uh, and the nature of uh, threats to democracy, uh, I think that there is uh, much wisdom in investing in, in, in common people's um, common sense. And, and ensuring that in the sense that academics are answerable to, um, you know, they don't speak a, a jargon, a language that, you know, that, that is just, uh, they keep to themselves. Um, 
And sometimes they will come up with uh, ideologies that are deeply twisted. And just because they can write 10 tomes about that doesn't mean they're right. Um, hmm. And so anyway, that's one thing that I take positively from uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. He, ha he has a lot of other things to say that, that uh, uh, both resonate with some contemporary thinkers that I work on whether it's uh, one, one comparison that I, that I often make that is explicit in the book is very oddly uh, a, a, a leftist political philosopher, one of the most important ones of the 20th century, uh, the American political philosopher, Sheldon Wallen, um, whose, whose, whose great book, uh, Politics and Vision, that's written in, I believe, in the 60s, um, in which he has some of the same concerns that I, I find reflected in Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, and this to me has another payoff, which is that political philosophy uh, and Western political philosophy is not... Um, it's not just Western. There is an element that's cross-cultural, you could say. Um, but these are not universal categories. Rather, these are categories of thinking about politics that one finds in every civilization. They're not quite the same, but through conversation, you can begin to see commonalities. You can begin to see common and shared wisdom. Um, and so... This means that there is need for doing non-Western philosophy for, for two reasons. One, because it's not the same, so therefore you will learn something, and because it's not so different that you will not understand it at all, right? It's precisely because it's in the middle that you have uh, enough similarity that you can start to communicate and enough difference that you will uh, truly have to confront uh, differences. Yeah. And I, I love to the, what you're talking about in terms of the value of history and the value of the history of philosophy and intellectual history that, uh, we find that there's something encouraging about that. We're facing similar problems and the distance in time gives us a viewpoint and uh, right. possible insight into new solutions that we wouldn't otherwise have if we put our blinders on and said, yeah. you know, 50 yeah. years or yeah, exactly. more recent. That's it. So uh, thank you. That was that was awesome. Uh, as we as we close out here, uh, what is one thing that you would leave to our uh, to our listeners uh, if they want to learn more and uh, something that you would encourage them um, in as a takeaway so from this? I think that learning about Islamic civilization um, is really worthwhile. And um, there are all kinds of surprises, all kinds of things that you, know, you, you, you wouldn't expect, uh, similarities and differences. So I would say, um, you know, do yourself a favor and pick up a book on on, on Islam, perhaps whatever, you know, you feel most comfortable, a biography, a history, um, a philosophy book or an intro to Islam book. Um, and 
I can guarantee you will find your mind expanded. And that's a great thing.